Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Faith is believing things when common sense tells you not to. Don't you see? It's not just Chris that's on trial. It's everything he stands for. It's kindness and joy and love and all the other intangibles. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode kicks off our holiday extravaganza with the 1947 miracle on 34th Street. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from a department store which will remain unnamed for legal reasons, <laughs> well, because we don't have the permission, my name is Don, and to my right we have our comic book guy, John. Season's greetings. And to our left we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everybody. So how are you doing tonight, Don? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you, sir? Feeling full of the holiday spirit. Do you feel the holiday spirit? Might be the alcohol. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Hey, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, how are you doing there, big guy? Aces, baby. Yeah? Tonight, we are talking about the 1947 version of Miracle on 34th Street. It is the holiday season, and so we are each going to pick a holiday film, and this one was mine. I chose this one because, A... Listeners, there are no holiday films in the Bronco Helmet, so the three guys get a pass on this one. And B, uh, I was thinking what to do, what to do, what to do, and then I was having a conversation with Tatiana, and I said, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And she said, the 1947 Miracle on 34th Street. And I stopped and I went, the black and white one? And she goes, yeah. And I just thought that was... Not odd, but, you know, with Elf and everything else out today. But Is this our first black and white movie we've reviewed? I think it might be, and I had never seen Miracle on 34th Street. Any version. Shut the front door. See, that's kind of where I came to as well. So, here we are. Released on June 11th. June 11th? Yes, sir. <laughs> I guess things worked differently back in 1947. They- uh, the producers or whoever was putting out the film didn't want to release it around Christmas time because they figured more people go see the movies over the summer. So it made it difficult for the promoters. They had to promote this movie without really letting out that it was going to be a Christmas-type movie. So all the posters and everything originally didn't have any Christmas themes on it. Oh, look at that. Originally, they were anxious that the movie was going to be profitable, and they didn't believe in the movie. Oh. Released on June 11, 1947, Miracle on 34th Street was directed by George Seaton. The screenplay by George Seaton. And it stars Maureen O'Hara, John Payne, Edmund Gwynn, Jean Lockhart, Natalie Wood, Porter Hall, William Frawley, Jerome Cowan, Philip Tung, and a bunch of other department store Santas. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $630,000, and it brought in $2.7 million. But if you think for 1947, that's that's that huge. A, first of all, an expensive movie, and they didn't expect that big of a return. So it, Yeah. Made four times. 
I mean, even today, if you make a movie and get four times back, it's pretty big, Mm -hmm. right? Hey, Professor, was this movie up for any Academy Awards? It was nominated for four Academy Awards. It won three for Best Supporting Actor for our Santa... For our Santa, which seems like he should be the actor because he's pretty much in the movie the entire time, Edmund Gwen. And then for writing, both of the writers got Academy Awards. And then it was also nominated for Best Picture. And did not win that. It did not. It lost to a movie called Gentleman's Agreement. I've never heard of it, have you? No. Yeah, We learn new things here on Three Guys all the time. But it is, I think, the first and only movie that Santa has won an Academy Award. That very well may be true. And you brought up a very interesting point, uh, Professor. Yeah. I wonder why it wasn't for actor. I tried to do a little research on this. And from what I've read, it's supposed to be like three different stories going on. The story of Fred the lawyer, of Doris the mother, and really of Susan the daughter. And Chris is just a part of those three stories and an influence on those three stories. Because really it's about, you know, Susan believing in Christmas and believing something beyond what she can see with her eyes. And then there's that whole love angle with Fred and Doris. I can see that. So they were just kind of, I guess they called him a supporting actor because he was part of their story. Right, right. Well, either way, I have to say, out of all of the Christmas movies I've seen, now seeing this one, uh, this Chris Kringle is probably in my top five. He was such a joy. He was so calm and peaceful. He, I thought, did an amazing job. If you know, I was going to make a movie about Santa, I'd want him, that type of character, the way he played it, that's the Santa I would want. In fact, I guess Natalie would who was eight years old when they were filming, thought he really was Santa. Yeah. And it wasn't until the cast party at the end of the filming where he had shaved his beard and wore a different outfit, wore a nice suit, that she realized he wasn't Santa. Gullible kids. Speaking of gullible kids, I'm watching the flick, and I'm thinking, fuck, that looks like Natalie Wood. I had no idea that Natalie Wood was in this movie. Oh, isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, and there was another one. Oh, the... Dude from the U.S. State Department, uh, Fred, from I Love Lucy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so those were the only two people that I knew or recognized in this film. Seeing as this movie was made in 1947, and those were the only two actors that I recognized, did you guys recognize any of these actors or seen them in anything before? Uh, Maureen O'Hara for uh, uh, The Quiet Man with John Wayne. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then I knew Natalie Wood also from Rebel Without a Cause, The Searchers. Um, you know, she she's a prolific actress in Hollywood. You know, she had a couple other big roles like uh, West Side Story, Splendor <laughs> in the Grass. I was going to say, there was that little movie, West Side Story. Uh, what about you? For me, I recognized Natalie Wood's name uh, because I saw when I was reading the information before the movie, I wouldn't have rec- if I didn't know like she was in that movie, I wouldn't have recognized her. So really, the only person I recognized by seeing them was Fred from I Love Lucy. What did you guys think of John Payne, the lawyer? I thought he was a likable character. He 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 had dashing good looks, and I also think that he played his uh, character with a lot of heart. You know who he reminded me of a little bit? 
Cary Grant. I was just about to say it. Cary Grant was the first one that came to mind. He uh, Every time I looked at him, I had to do a double take going, are you sure that wasn't Cary Grant? And I thought for sure Maureen O'Hara was not gone with the win at, in some capacity, but no, she wasn't. No, I guess John Payne was such a huge fan of this movie. It was like the, one of the favorite movies he ever made that up until his dying day, him and uh, Maureen O'Hara wanted to make a sequel. In fact, John was writing one, but no, he never gave anybody the script before he died. Before yeah, he I read away. that too. Yeah. That would have been interesting to see what, what he had come up with. But it's also one of those movies that just doesn't need a sequel. It's just a good movie. Yeah, and it didn't need a sequel, but it got a remake. Did you guys ever see the remake? Once. I I may have. If I did, I forget. Here tell it's not that bad, so I think at some point I'm going to check it out. What about, here's the question, they colorized this movie at one point. Did you ever see or any bits and pieces of the colorized version? No, I heard that they colorized it, and I think it was one of the first movies to be colorized. Yeah. And no, I haven't seen it. Would I check it out? Maybe. But there's something to be said about black and white. I was just about to say, do you have any thoughts on them colorizing movies? I think it's a cool idea, and I think you can watch it one time and just to see what it would be like. However, I feel that when I watch a black and white movie, I want to watch it in black and white because that's the way it was originally shown to audiences. Now, would they have shown it in color if it was available? Absolutely. But black and white takes us back to a period of time where the film process was so pure. And uh, I, I just have an appreciation for that. I also feel like... The genre of black and white movies was a different time in that people had different morals, outlooks, uh, just the whole time period of the way people were. When you colorize it, you kind of add a confusing, you know, it's not a newer movie. It's an older movie. I want to appreciate the older movie. That and take into consideration that you have the director working with the lighting and what it's going to appear on celluloid on the big screen, that they have a particular vision in mind. And so you are diluting you are uh, perverting what the director very well could have been angling for in having that that contrast of, of light and dark. Yeah. yeah, agreed. What do you think about the rating of this movie? What was it? Uh, I was given a B rating for morally objectable in part. Oh, I thought you meant the rating as like PGG. Yeah. Um, Oh, that? By the League of Decency. It's 1947, man. It's the sign of the times. Yes. But why did it get a B? Oh, because... uh, She was a divorcee. Yeah. So IMDB has this listed with no rating, NR. But when I fire this up on Prime, what does it say? G. PG-13. Get out of here. What the fuck? I bet you. PG-13. Because the algorithm's looking for it and says, oh, it got a B for indecency because she's divorced. (laughs) So, and I went in, so I went back into IMDb and I looked at uh, the standards, you know, the parental standards that they can look for. And the only thing it really talks about is cigar and cigarette smoking. Yeah. Yeah. That was a little, I don't know, I want to say jolting, but it was interesting to see all of the cigarette smoking and the fact that people were just smoking like around the children or, you know, at the restaurant, in the stores. You thought that was weird? It's just, you don't see that anymore these days. It's just not something that we are accustomed to. You didn't see that over in Europe? I did see a lot in in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of smoking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very accustomed to it in movies. 
Are you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because yeah, it because it reflects the time. I yeah, I guess that's true. I was gonna say, you know, you see it in movies, but you don't see it to that degree. Like nobody cares about it. Valentine Davies, who was the actual one who wrote the original story for this movie, do you know where he got the idea? No. He was struggling through Christmas shopping crowds, trying to find a present for his wife. Uh, the commercialism that he saw made him wonder if what the real Santa Claus would make of the whole thing. And so he wanted to write a story, basically, of Santa Claus dealing with the commercialism. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I would have liked to seen, in the 70s, Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner uh, were approached to do a remake. You know, and now Susan's obviously a remake or sequel. Now Susan's obviously older, but Natalie Wood was like, I don't want to get my daughter into acting Mm -hmm. this young. Mm -hmm. But I would have been curious to see what that version would have looked like. Well, the principal cast thought that this movie was, they they all look back on it with great fondness and they Mm -hmm. thought it was a unique, magical movie and it was a wonderful uh, set experience that they all spoke very highly of. And I got to say, it kind of comes across when you watch it. (sighs) Is it trivia time? Yes, but I want you to play me in with some Christmas music. In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie trivia, I prepared a series of questions related to the movie we are reviewing this episode. Please wait until I finish each question before answering, which will probably be a Christmas miracle. What time did the parade start? 10 a.m. Very good. Is that what you said, Professor? I said noon. Oh, it was 10 a.m., On that little memo thing. Macy's is on 34th Street. What is the cross street? Miracle. 7th? 7th Avenue. Very good, Professor. On Chris Kringle's job form, how old does it say Chris is? 69. No, it doesn't. It says that he is... Shit. It's it's a thing that he talks about uh, for time. Oh, as old as his tongue but not as old as his teeth. Something like that. Very close, Professor. And in fact, I'm going to give it to you. I'm as old as my tongue and a little older than my teeth, which basically means when he was born, his teeth hadn't come in yet. Now, for a bonus, who originally wrote that? Quote, Jonathan Swift. Okay. And do we have a time limit when the question gets asked? You know, like Jeopardy, they have like 30 seconds to answer the no, question. because I was very interested in hearing what the professor had to say. Oh, so there is no time limit. Okay, good to know. All right, that's all I want to know. Well, Just... professor doesn't have a time limit. Oh, okay, okay. Good, 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 good. What is Doris's position at Macy's? <laughs> Advertising manager? Uh, oh, um, no, manager? no, no, no. Yeah, she's in charge of the parade. She's the store supervisor. How many mailbags are carried into the courtroom at the end of Chris's hearing? 11. 11. What do you say? I said 100, but no, I think I really overshot that. 21 mailbags. Uh, I was closest. What was the name of the attorney? 21 mailbags. That's just what the statistic I looked up said, 21. There were six people that walked through the door. The first five had two bags, one on the shoulder, one Mm. being drug, and then the sixth person came in with one bag. But didn't they also bring one in in the beginning? Well, that would have made 12, not 21. I don't don't know, but they... Thing I looked up said twenty one. So oh, I love it. I love the discrepancies. We need so, to get to the fucking bottom of this, people. We'll, we'll eliminate that one, man. What was the name of the attorney who defended Chris Kringle? Oh, Fred Gailey. Very good, Professor. Oh, I was thinking of the prosecution. Damn it! And for the final question, 
What language was Mr. Kringle using to talk to the little girl who couldn't speak English? Dutch. Very good. I want to say we actually have a tie this week, so we will continue on with our tie. Okay, I will take it, even though I'm pretty sure you kicked my ass. Um, But hey, tie's a tie. Chris Kringle is upset to find that the man assigned to play Santa in the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is intoxicated. When he complains to event director Doris Walker, she persuades Chris to take his place. He does so well, he is hired to play Santa at Macy's New York City store on 34th Street. Ignoring instructions from the toy department head, Mr. Shellhammer, to recommend overstocked items to undecided shoppers, Chris directs one woman to another store to fulfill her son's Christmas request. Impressed by Chris's honesty and helpfulness, she informs Shellhammer that she will now become a loyal Macy's customer. So the film opens. What would you guys think of this whole ditty? It has, it has a, a rather rare tracking shot. We are following Chris Kringle walking down the street, which means that the camera had to be mounted on some sort of a little cart because we are following Chris as he walks down the street and he turns the corner. You know, that is one of the first things that I noticed about this movie, that the camera very rarely moves. Correct. Because, because they're so freaking big. Yeah. So every time it moved, I would go, oh, it's moving. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed that I thought was really interesting is, and I don't know if this is the way it was with a lot of these older movies, that the credits came right at the beginning. Credits still come at the beginning of movies today. But no, it was like all the credits. If you watched all the way to the end, there were no credits at the end. It was just, here's all your credits for the movie, here's the director, all that information, right at the beginning. It's not necessarily unusual, but what is unusual is certainly the the amount of names on the credits. Mm-hmm. You watch something like Casablanca, there's like just a couple of cards. It It's very brief. Yeah, and you usually got, Longer opening credits and shorter end credits. Mm -hmm. One big interesting thing I thought about this movie from what I was reading is that uh, they really wanted to have the whole parade be part of the movie. So they used the real Macy's New York parade and had basically one opportunity to film it. Um, So they got, uh, you know, the actor who played Chris Kringle, they got him to be the parade Santa for that year. Yeah. Yeah, they they had cameras mounted everywhere because they you know you get your one shot here it, here it is, so yeah it's it's a uh, pretty cool yeah having the movie open on Chris stopping at the uh, stopping at the window to comment about the position of the reindeer I thought was a, a nice intro for us. Be- I agree because it's it's just subtle that he's being uh, critical about having the position of the reindeer. And the wife, she's looking and she's saying, how does he know which one is which? I go, it's because of the antlers. Yeah. He's Santa. And I'm waiting for this guy in the shop just to open the door and go, fuck off. Yeah, I was kind of too. Chris moseys along and he stumbles upon the drunk Santa. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I immediately think, if I was a Santa and I was doing uh, a parade like that, I'd probably be hammered too. Apparently, that was a seriously cold day to the point where even the camera equipment was freezing over while they were trying to film. So, yeah, I guess I kind of understand. 
I believe it. And I, I, I don't necessarily uh, raise my eyebrows that much to Santa being drunk because, you know, 80 years ago, it was not unusual for people to have drinking issues on the job in everyday life. Yeah, yeah. 80 minutes ago, it's not unusual to have people drinking on the job. And so, uh, Chris... Doris is in a pinch. And we are introduced to Doris. And what did you guys think of Maureen O'Hara? It was uh, liberating to have, especially an older movie, to have a woman with with so much power in charge of so much. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I was impressed by that. Exactly. And to take it one step further a divorced woman who's on her own, who is basically making her own decisions. You don't see a lot of that. You usually see the men taking over and I'll take care of this woman. Cause that's no. certainly the culture. Yeah. And she was the one who had the great job, who loved her job and was in charge. And I think the biggest thing that we forgot to say right here is that she's a single mom. Mm-hmm. She's doing this all in New York city as a single mom and she's trying to do her best. And she looks to be doing okay because they have a housekeeper. Yeah, they have a housekeeper. Well, you notice also she's respected too. It's not like the men talk over her or around her. They talk to her in this movie. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, and and so that was uh that was very refreshing to have because that certainly isn't the culture. And then we meet Frank and Susan, which you know right off the bat. I'm kind of like, that's kind of weird. Well, I'm thinking in this day and age, that would be looked at completely different than it would have maybe back then well, for a strange guy to invite a little girl over to his house oh, and yeah. have all this alone time with her when the mother hasn't even met the guy yet. Well, uh, it sounds like that they met. I don't know. She said, oh, that, that neighbor? Right. So it sounds like that they've met. Yeah. Maybe passing in the hallway. That type maybe of thing. something. That's, maybe the- yeah. But also, we do have one establishing camera shot that shows mom looking across the courtyard into his apartment window that we are able to see both of the characters in the window. So the filmmakers are saying, hey, this is okay. And it does, and we do find out that Bailey, Gailey? Mr. Gailey. Mr. Gailey is uh, getting to know Susan and being sweet because maybe he might be a little smitten with Doris. Well, I like how it's kind of revealed early on that Susan is actually trying to help him get to meet the mom and kind of, you know, get with the mom. Sure, sure. Cute little trope there. Mm -hmm. So She's playing Cupid. (laughs) And so we get uh, the parade and Kris Kringle's doing his thing. And we find how mature she and sensible and practical Susan is. She's talking about her parents, you know, being divorced and that fairy tales are silly. And she is a practical woman, just like her mother, if you will. At eight years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, mom shows up and the two of them chat. And Fred, he's he's like, what's the deal? She doesn't like fairy tales and she doesn't. And she, but you know that that's mom's parenting style. Yeah. Well, I think she also kind of sees it as if you're going to be you know, a professional woman in those times, you have to give up fantasy and you have to be practical. You have to get any respect. You basically have to be, you know, forthcoming and uh, 
have a business head on her. So she wanted her to focus on her education, her intellect, and all of those things, and leave imagination and fantasy behind. And so what the filmmakers and storytellers are doing are that they are setting this foundation for us, and they're mm-hmm. telling us that this is where the turn is going to be, because at the heart of it, you know, every kid deserves to be a kid, and... Believing in Santa Claus is a part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's Susan, eight years old. I don't believe in Santa Claus. That's right. And so uh, we have a, a quick little bit where she begs to have Mr. Gailey over for Thanksgiving dinner. Right. And then it find, and then come to find out, did I say it right? Was I, Did I say it right? It was all a ruse, little fucker. In the meantime, uh, Chris does such a good job on at the parade that Doris convinces him to be a Macy's Santa Claus. Well, it's because the, the Macy's owner saw him and thought... This is the perfect Santa. He looks just like him. Because maybe something spoke to Mr. Macy and something told him that it was the real Santa Claus. I just Who knows? I think it's the amazing beard. That's, that it, was a kick-ass beard. Well, I'm not going to argue with you guys. It was a very kick-ass beard. But I like to also think that there was something else at work here. The uh, It's not shown, but you know his eyes twinkle practically when he's on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I also liked it. They talked about, you know, he didn't need any padding in his suit or anything like that, but he would seem like a great, you know, just shape, size, height, all that. Perfect for what you would imagine for like the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. Right. You know, the Coca-Cola Santa Claus is pretty much where we get our vision of what Santa Claus looks like. Before Coca-Cola came along with that, it was a Norse god that (laughs) has one eye missing. He has uh, an eight-legged horse. Oh, so oh, basically based off of Odin? Yeah. I didn't they call him something like Sinterklaas back then? I, I don't know. But or at least that's how the, uh, I think the Norse people called it. But courtesy of Coca-Cola, that's where we get our vision of Santa Claus. He thinks Coca-Cola. And I think it was uh, Norman Rockwell. Didn't he design that, that Santa version? He, he, he certainly has uh, enriched uh, the American nostalgia vision of that stupid Norman Rockwell, whatever. <laughs> So Mr. Shellhammer, he is duly impressed with Santa, and he is just over the moon on how wonderful he seems to be responding to the children, and he looks like that he is going to be the Santa that they have to hold on to, and he tells this to Susan. And Chris, in the meantime, tells this mom, we don't have the fire truck, but it's over here. He helps her find it at a different store. And the mom is so impressed that a Macy's employee or a Santa Claus at Macy's would do that. She goes up to Shellhammer and says, you know what? I am now a loyal Macy's customer. And and so, yeah. So when Mr. Shellhammer hears this, initially he's completely incensed because Shellhammer told Chris, push our merchandise. And instead he hears the opposite of it. But then he is slack jawed when the woman says, now I'm a loyal customer because of this. Right. Right. Kind of interesting, just talking about, like we were just a second ago, about the look of this Santa Claus, you know, versus other Santa Clauses. Just last night, I went downtown. And one of the things that Julie and I like to do is we go over to Nordstrom's because they always have a Santa in the window taking pictures with the children. And one of our favorite things to do is to watch the children get put on Santa's lap and then just start screaming and crying. Creepy. It kind of fills us with the holiday spirit. Mm. But... Looking at that Santa and something that I was talking about with her was 
I don't know, just something about seeing a Santa with the really overly fake beard and the just really typical, you know, what you would expect every mall Santa to look like. Um, really, again, made me appreciate this movie and wishing like they had found somebody who had a real white beard and maybe a little bit different in the way that they dressed him to not be so typical and stere- you know, like stereotypical Santa, I guess. And I just, something about it made me wish for more. And I think maybe it was this movie that might have spoiled me a little bit. My dad's friend, Gordy Tibbetts, looking down from heaven, look, thinking about you. And I know that he is somebody that for a bunch of years was the Nordstrom Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And he looks he looked just like him. He's, you know, yeah. a little more on the heavy set side and he has the beard. Looked great. Saw, yeah. saw him in the window several They times. had him on one of those really bleached, white, gigantic, you could even see the clips going over his ears kind of thing. And it just took me out of the whole Christmas spirit seeing this just fake-looking Santa. Which leads me to my next point, which is we get a very brief exchange between Chris and Alfred. And Alfred talks about how he feels great when he gets to dress up being a Santa. What do you think of the Alfred character? He was a curious character, and I thought that it was amusing that you have such a young guy wanting to play old Santa Claus. Might have had an old soul. Maybe. Maybe. But I thought he was enjoyable. I think he was a great side character for our Kris Kringle because he got to see somebody who just had the pure spirit of Christmas. It wasn't about the commercialism. He just wanted to be Santa to spread the holiday cheer. And that, to me, was... Of all the things that Chris experienced, you know, in this movie, besides that letter, that was one of the things I felt like maybe restored his Christmas spirit a bit. And Mr. Shellhammer certainly is won over by this Chris Kringle of directing people to other stores. There's six more women waiting outside to thank you. Right. Yeah. So Would, he adopts the philosophy. Which is also nice because then it goes all the way up to the head guy, I can't remember, Mr. Macy, who... Uh, decides that okay let's keep this going let's make it you know a holiday of good spirit and and we'll do this and it takes off attorney fred gailey doris's neighbor takes the young divorcee's daughter susan to see santa doris has raised her not to believe in fairy tales but Susan is shaken after seeing Chris speak Dutch with a girl who does not speak English. Doris asks Chris to tell Susan that he is not Santa, but he insists that he is. Worried, Doris decides to fire him, but Chris has generated so much positive publicity and goodwill that R.H. Macy, the store's owner, promises bonuses. To alleviate Doris's misgivings, Shellhammer suggests Gransville Sawyer administer a psychological evaluation. Sawyer recommends Chris's dismissal. Meanwhile, Susan shows Chris a magazine photo of her dream house and tells him she wants it for Christmas. Reluctantly, he promises to do his best. So I thought that it was very amusing that we have uh, Fred. He's going to take susan to visit santa when he knows that mom is pushing there is no santa he's he's trying to get his way in you know and what better way than to defy the mother's uh, wishes <laughs> so uh uh susan goes and they see santa uh what do you think of this bit 
I thought it was really cute, especially the part with the little Dutch girl. Did you read the translation of what the little Dutch girl says to Santa? Yeah, so all I want for Christmas is you or something like that. No, basically, you know, the mom comes up and says, well, she doesn't speak English. You know, I'm sorry, she speaks Dutch. She thinks you can speak it. He turns on and speaks it back to her. And what their conversation was, uh, first of all, they're talking about Claus, which is, you know, how I guess they say it in uh, for in Dutch. But what she says to her, he asks her, well, what would you like for Christmas? And she responds, nothing. I don't, I have everything I want. All I want to do is stay with this lovely woman. Oh, because she was adopted. She was adopted. Yeah. So she said, I got what I want for Christmas. Yeah. yeah, that was a very sweet scene. I also appreciated how much Doris lays into Fred for uh, trying to pull this little stunt. What the hell? I kind of figured that Fred's whole game plan here was that Susan was going to ask Santa for Fred to be her new daddy. Oh, maybe. I mean, being a guy, you would he. I could see him thinking that, and he'd be like, "Well, <laughs> what are you going to do? Call me daddy." So Doris sits down with Susan. There is no Santa, and she calls Chris to the office. Would you please tell her that this is a a, a role that you play? But I can't. What do you think of when? Uh, Basically, like Doris is like, okay, fine, pull his job file and goes in his job file. And did you read what was on the job file? The employment card? Yeah, like the name of the reindeer were on it. That was his next of kin, was the reindeer. Yeah. And we said the quote earlier about how old he is. Right. Um, Yeah, he listed all of it on there. Except the interesting thing was, and they bring it up later on in the movie, is that his address is like at an old retirement home, like almost like a mental hospital. Brooks Memorial home for the aged yeah right Right. which is a wonderful a wonderful thing to put in there us the audience because then we the audience can be subtly thinking is he really santa sure because wait maybe he's a little delusional right it puts that doubt in our mind exactly and yeah and so we hold on to that yeah because i was thinking immediately when i saw that now, did he escape from this place? Like, why isn't anybody looking for him? And I'm curious, how did he end up there? Why is he there? Yeah. He's Santa. So Doris wants to fire him, right? Because she's had kind of enough of his shenanigans. He's a nice old guy. He's really sweet. Well, but she also thinks he's batshit crazy. I was getting there. But I don't, and I don't think she thinks that he's batshit crazy, but he's certainly not firing on all cylinders but he's not dangerous there might have been a little i question i think she kind of because she talks to the psychiatrist guy afterwards but i think she was kind of heading in the same direction psychiatrist is he could act out and hurt a customer how you know how unstable is this guy we got to find out but first she's called up to macy's office and then macy lays it all out this is our new store policy anybody wants to know we're going to tell them where they can find it if we can't give it to them. And she's like, oh, fuck. I was just about to fire this guy, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the best next thing? Let's have him go take a psychological evaluation. Well, didn't she actually tell him he was done and then had to go back and say, no, 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 we changed our, or because she said, uh, we're bringing back our old Santa right? because we promised him the job. And then she comes back down and says, oh, no, we decided to put him elsewhere to keep you along after Macy announced that he wanted to keep him. But her and right. Shellhammer come up with an idea that maybe we can kind of sort of get him checked out. Right. What you guys think of the uh, psychologist? He was a weasel from the start. Oh, that's totally what he's supposed to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, with a name like Gransville Sawyer? Got to be a douche. 
Yeah. Granville. Granville Sawyer. And I, I was trying to get a read on him, why he was so antagonistic just from the start, whether it was like a power play, whether he just was selfish, whether he just was a dick. I don't know. There was just something about him. Well, clearly he had his own opinion already made up. Right. And I thought for some reason they might have dove back into that as the movie progressed and we would find out that he had a childhood traumatic experience about Christmas. Yeah. But, but, we, did, but, but we didn't go that but far. So. Regardless of that, we still needed it for the story. Because we, we have to have an antagonist for our yeah. story to, that, that makes the the what Chris overcomes that much more satisfying. Yeah, the only thing I get was that Chris kind of challenges his you know, his intellect by questioning him back and kind of making it sound like this guy, you know, the psychologist guy had his own issues and he didn't like that. Right. I mean, he even said, yeah. I'm not the one, right. I, I'm asking the question. Right, because yeah. he's he's very deliberately, uh, he, he talks about uh, idiosyncrasies and then mannerisms and then he keeps touching his, his eyebrows, right? He keeps stroking his eyebrow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we have, despite what he says, Shellhammer and Doris, they decide, well, we got to figure something out to sort of look after him when he's not sitting on Santa's chairs, Santa's throne, if you will. Right, right. And then they decide, well, let's go ahead and, oh, Shellhammer says he could stay at my place. But he's got to get his wife liquored up to agree to it. I thought that part was kind of funny. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we can totally do it. My wife will do whatever I say as long as I get her liquored up. (laughs) There was a lot. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I did. There was a a lot of uh, toothpicks on the tray. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. For the olives? I I thought you were going to say misogyny. (laughs) There's a little bit of that, too. I think a little bit more than a little, but sign of the times. Yeah. Sign of the times. Yeah. Uh, so Shellhammer's like, yeah, you totally stay with me. And in the meantime, doesn't Fred offer? Yeah. So so we have Chris and Susan, and they're sitting together, and they're chatting. And Chris is exploring, why don't you have an imagination, Susan? And they start going back and forth about the importance of imagination. Right, right. And this importance of imagination is the dawning that Susan is getting on her character that is going to allow us to have that that vindication, that satisfaction of Susan believing in Santa. Right. right. Yeah, and I think we were going as Fred was witnessing all this. And I think he decides to invite chris to come stay with him because he wants more interaction between chris and susan because it's so good for susan yeah he walks in to find they're monkeying around he's showing her how to be a monkey yes agreed with all of that and i also think that you know fred is thinking if i keep him around then i'll get close to doors too yeah i also i don't know why but something the warm feeling i got from them monkeying around as you put it professor was it's almost like a, a grandfather-granddaughter interaction. I really appreciated that. It just felt like, you know, this just, I don't know, something about you know, making me miss my own grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, sure. It, 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 oh, sure. It was a very very strong fondness between the two that's blossoming here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very tender. Mm-hmm. Very tender. And so we have this little exchange. She's in bed. He's sitting with her. What do you want for Christmas? 
And what does she want? She wants a freaking house. She pulls out the magazine ad. I thought that was so funny. I was thinking like a dollhouse or, you know, a doll or a pony even. Well, that's his reaction. It's like she says, I want a house. Oh, you want a dollhouse? No, I want a house. A real house. A freaking house. Which back then would cost two, three hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So that night we have Fred and Chris. They start talking strategy, if you will, about how they are going to, you know, conquer the girls, if you will. And Fred's got to decide, you know, should it be should it be a colonial house or maybe a Cape Cod house style? I'm not sure. Yeah. In the company cafeteria, young employee Alfred tells Chris that Sawyer convinced him that he is unstable simply because he enjoys dressing as Santa Claus. Chris immediately confronts Sawyer, eventually striking him on the head with an umbrella. Sawyer exaggerates his pain to have Chris confined to Bellevue Hospital. Tricked into cooperating and believing Doris to be in on the deception, Chris deliberately fails his examination and is recommended for permanent commitment. However... Fred persuades Chris not to give up and represents him in court. At the hearing before Judge Henry X. Harper, District Attorney Thomas Mara gets Chris to assert that he is Santa Claus and rests his case, asking Harper to rule that Santa does not exist. In private, Harper's political advisor, Charlie O'Halloran, warns him that doing so would be disastrous for his upcoming re-election bid. Harper buys time by hearing further evidence. Fred calls Macy's as a witness and gets him to admit that he believes in Santa. On leaving the stand, Macy fires Sawyer. Next, Fred calls Mira's own young son, who testifies that his father told him that Santa is real. Mira concedes the point, but goes on to demand that Fred prove that Chris is the one and only Santa Claus based on some competent authority by the following day. There was one other thing that I wanted to bring up oh so briefly that happens when Chris and Susan are talking, after Chris uh, um, have the exchange, we see something that that I, I think is put in there to make us uh, like and want to uh, get behind Susan. She's chewing bubble gum lying in bed, and she blows the bubble. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a conscious choice for the director to put that in there into the story to make her not be just this grown-up that's jaded not jaded, but skeptical, right? That she still is a kid having that bubble gum in there. Doesn't she take like out a piece of wrapper or something to put it away yeah. and then put it back she in her drawer or something? Piece, yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally a kid move. Yeah, and did you like the whole uh, Santa having to pick the gum out of his beard? Yeah, that was cute. I've had to pick gum out of my beard, so I sympathize with the guy. One thing I, I was going to mention earlier with the whole what happens next with Chris's interaction with the psychiatrist was early on when the psychiatrist was giving his report on Chris, he said it's only a matter of time before he has an outburst and he strikes someone. Uh, I think that was a good example of foreshadowing in this movie. So when the psychiatrist tells all those horrible things to Alfred and makes Alfred doubt who he is and his whole purpose of, you know, his whole Christmas spirit, then maybe there's something more to him just wanting to bring joy to people uh chris kind of loses it yeah 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 he he uh confronts him uh jeez he confronts him and i i I thought that it it was ridiculous that he got the goose egg that he got based off of a bap 
from an umbrella. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And who hasn't been hit by an umbrella, a cane, or something by an older person? I know. What? Oh, you haven't? No. Oh. Just you me, bud. (laughs) I've got the scars to prove it. There you go. So Ms. Walker, Mr. Shellhammer, they happen by just at the right time. And Sawyer, he plays it up. I love how he pretends like he's knocked out. He should have been playing soccer. And so... uh, There's a heated exchange, but Doris, she defends Chris. And she just, no, no, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to let him go. We're, We're keeping him. And I think that this is a marked shift in Doris to be saying that she is now supporting, believing something about him. Right. As opposed to it's not just business. Right. Right. I never that's one of my issues with this movie is and maybe I missed it somewhere. But where was Doris's turn? What was it that made her start believing that he was actually, you know, who he thinks he is or at least supporting him? Because before she was more on the fence of this guy's a bad influence on my daughter. And it never really showed her seeing a lot of the interactions between Chris and Susan. Susan. Mm-hmm. So I didn't see exactly what it was that kind of got uh, Doris over the fence. Did you guys catch anything? I just thought it was probably through Susan, even though we didn't see it. Because, mm-hmm. uh, well, we'll get to it in a few moments in talking about, at, you know, at the uh, mental institution, Bellevue. Anyway, but no, it's not necessarily overtly revealed on screen. When, when we have Doris coming around, if you will. Right. Right. And because Chris hits homeboy and that's the outburst that Sawyer was hoping would happen. And he kind of lured him into it, whatever. Uh, Chris gets sent to Bellevue and his mental health is in question. And they had kind of talked earlier about, you know, these exams that you take and how Chris already knew all the answers to the exam, but when he got to this case, you know, thing, because he thought Doris and everybody had turned on him, that he had lost his spirit and purposely failed the test. Right. And so that's what, and that's what I'm referring to, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we don't see any of that, but we are told that through Chris sitting there in Bellevue and failing miserably. And the look on him, you know, throughout this whole movie, he was jolly and he had his Christmas spirit and he was happy. And I remember seeing him sitting in that chair, slumped over, wearing the oversized kind of clothes that he was wearing that didn't fit him. And you could, just the look of that, you could feel just the, you know, like the fact that he just had given up. I thought that was a, the, the emotions that it conveyed without saying a word, it worked in that scene. Mm-hmm. And we have Fred show up and and in their exchange, you know, he... He reinvigorates Chris, and he also tells Chris that that Doris had nothing to do with it. So Shellhammer, he goes along with it because it's betw- Shellhammer is the one that, that lures Chris away under false pretenses. So now we have Fred saying, well, no, that's not really the case. And with that, that now we realize that Fred is very much on Chris's side as well. And I think that that has to do with... he likes the guy too yeah and i thought that from the get-go i thought that fred was always on board with chris and that's just who his character was his character was an upbeat optimistic kind of fellow Mm -hmm. and uh i like the fact that now they're going to go to court and fred says fuck it i'll defend you 
mm-hmm. you know. One of the things I really appreciate about this movie, with everything that's going on in the world today, and kind of the message that this movie conveyed even back then, is so what if somebody wants to say they're Santa Claus? Who's it hurting? You know, what damage is it doing? If anything, it's making this person happier. And through that person being happier, he is spreading the joy and happiness. And I really like how kind of Fred, when he takes on the case, I don't think at any point up until maybe the end that he starts questioning it, he doesn't really believe this is the Santa Claus. But at the same time, he doesn't feel that there's anything wrong with Chris believing he's Santa. Does he say that he doesn't believe? Well, at the very end, when they, whatever, you know, that happens at the end, he says, do you think he really is? So I don't think he believed at any point that he was Santa. And they're like, well, no, no, at the end. Interesting. We have Mr. Macy, for, for a, from a business standpoint, <laughs> laying into Sawyer really heavily. What the hell did you do? I want my Santa back. Right, right. And so now this is how Santa becomes elevated with, I want to say, non-believers, that they have their... They have their own motives for wanting to say that Santa, this Santa is Santa, yeah. right? Mr. Macy, uh, Judge Harper, right? They have their own agenda. Uh, uh, the prosecutor, Mara, he he doesn't want to, you know, crush his child's hopes, you know, in saying that this is, there is no Santa. And Fred even calls Mara's kid to the stand. Which you is know. kind of a dick move. But smart. But, you know, the thing is, though, and again, with some of my issues with this movie, first of all, to call anybody the stand, both sides have to have a list of witnesses. Oh, there, there's several discrepancies when it comes to practicing the law that we see yeah. in this movie. There's there's several things. So You mean in movies in general? Well, yeah. yeah. The no, DA, I, I'm agreeing with you. The DA would have known that his son was on that list. The other thing that kind of bothered me was, and you just brought up a great point, Professor, is I felt like everybody had selfish reasons for how they were going. And, you know, a judge who's supposed to be impartial, unbiased, came off as pretty biased. Like, he really did not want to rule against Chris and he was ready to do whatever he could because of you know Fred whispering in his ear you know Fred Mertz that uh, he was ready to do whatever he could to hopefully say Chris was Santa or dismiss the case or get the case done all because he was worried about his own political career the judge was the judge was the the attorney was I mean you're you're you are prosecuting Santa Mm -hmm. I mean that's kind of fucked up yeah, but at no time do any of these characters really believe he is Santa. So all of them were really going on the side of the DA of this is not Santa Claus. But at the same time, they had their selfish reasons for making him Santa. Like even Macy, who said on, you know, at the booth that you know, I believe he's Santa, in his head you could see, no, he did not believe he was Santa, but he still lied on, you know, after taking an oath, he lied on in, to the court. You're assuming he lied. Well, he kind of went through all the profitable and all the reasons why they needed this Santa because everybody loved him. They never said anything that he actually believed he was Santa. He just says it at the end because I think he wants his store Santa back. Maybe. Well, uh, yeah, uh, that's what I, I was mentioning earlier. Everybody has has their own reasons to promote Chris Kringle being Santa Claus. 
we have a quick little montage of uh, newspaper clippings, different stories being run about Chris Kringle being on trial. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now it, this takes us to the whole courtroom scene stuff. And we have uh, Sawyer, he, he, he begs gaily, please, we don't want any publicity out of this. Please, please, please drop it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to drop it. Well, I like, not only does he say that, but that's where he then releases it all to the newspapers and we get all these publicity after them asking him not to publicize it. Yeah, they, they want to just lay low and let it, just keep it out of the spotlight. And then, well, <laughs> once Chris gets up onto the stand, you know, that, you know that, that's, where the, that, that, that's where we have this whole thing a uh, third act unfolding once he gets up onto the stand. Right. <laughs> I like it when Chris gets up onto the stand and he asks for his name, Chris Kringle. And then where do you live? Well, that's what this hearing will decide. Yeah. That was a, yeah. that was a very that was a cute answer. That was a very cute answer. Yeah. And we go through our list of the witnesses and, you know, we were saying that, uh, Mara's son gets called up there and, uh, I want to talk about something else that, so we have, Chris Kringle up on the stand, and after he's off the stand, we have Mr. Gailey said that he intends to prove that Chris Kringle is Santa Claus. And with that, that uh, forces the, this confrontation that evening between Fred and Doris. Oh, I quit the law firm. Right. And she's like, what? You know, and then, you know, now there's some serious friction because she doesn't know if she's going to be able to be with a guy that's only going to have kooks for clients. Right. Right, because, I mean, he's defending Santa Claus. Right. So, Well, I like the interaction of the DA at home with his wife. And first of all, his kids won't even, like, look at him or talk to him because he's prosecuting Santa. And then the wife says something to, why couldn't I have married a plumber or, you know, a mechanic or something like that? And he's like, if I lose this case, you may get your wish. You may get your wish. That's right. And, and, and another thing that's, that is nice at that moment is that he expresses regret that he's having to do his job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to prosecute Santa, right? But he's doing his job. That's that's his job. Yeah. But how do you explain that to your kids? Well, I guess you would have to commit. Is there or is there not a Santa Claus? Mm -hmm. Which I think he did a good job of basically not saying there is no Santa. He was whole. All he was really going off was saying was this is not Santa. Correct. Correct. You just need a reasonable doubt. Yeah, well, right. well, yeah, and, and this all comes from Mr. Macy being up on the stand and Mr. Macy realizing the dollar signs that are going to happen just flutter away if he says that he's not Santa Claus, so he says that yes. It's a trickle-down effect. Uh, Macy loses all the money. The judge gets doesn't get reelected. Mm -hmm. uh, the prosecutor gets uh, shamed for being the guy who imprison santa or whatever they were also saying that the the toy makers will sell less toys if kids don't believe in santa yeah. cards won't be sold etc yeah. etc et and so um so the, so the prosecutor he's so incensed that mr macy has said that he is santa claus he asks the judge point blank do you think that there is a santa claus and then with that oh, he is He's in a conundrum. He's stuck. And uh, let's take a brief recess. And he heads back. And then that's where he, that's where the judge gets to see his own future if he says that there is no Santa Claus. Right, which is bleak like everyone else's. 
Uh, but there's a classic, classic movie trope at this moment when he's asked if he believes in Santa. It cuts to the judge, cuts to his buddy in the back. Yeah, Halloran. Right, making the face, cuts back to the judge. Yep. I, uh, um, I, uh, cuts back to Halloran. I mean, that was very typical for those movies back then. Because it, it, I don't want to say they were overacted, but they were a little bit overacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My favorite bit in this whole thing is when Macy gets off the stand and is walking back and looks at Sawyer and says, dude, you're fucking fired. <laughs> I think that's my favorite bit. Mm-hmm. Right after that, we have uh, the prosecutor's son, uh, uh, Mara. What's his name? His his son's name? Son. No, Thomas Mara Jr. takes the stand. What? How can he not know? Just like John was saying. There are several discrepancies. The fact that the you have... You have Mr. Gailey questioning uh, Chris up on the stand, and then the prosecutor, he just starts talking. He asks a question. You, you don't get to do that. And then you have uh, later on, uh, the the trial has resumed, and Mr. Gailey comes walking in. That's at the end, you know, with the letters. Why Why is the trial started and he's not in the room? Right. It's, there, there's, there, there were several things. It's like, wow, that's bullshit. No, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, what'd you think about his little boy taking the stand? I thought it was funny. I thought it was a genius move. I thought it was a genius move on Fred's part, and it pays off because that night kids won't talk to him. <laughs> well, that, so, I think the kids wouldn't talk to him before that. Oh, they showed it? that before that. But I thought it was so funny is not only does the kid get up there and kind of destroy a lot of the DA's case, you notice the DA couldn't cross-examine him. He basically just let him off the stand right after his testimony because his wife probably would have killed him had he tried to cross-examine his own kid. And so he's come to the conclusion that, yes, okay, there is a Santa Claus, but he wants competent expert proof that this is the one and only Santa Claus. And this is his out, and this is the judge's out as well. If you can prove it, I mean physically prove it then i have no problem saying you're santa but if you can't physically prove it then i have no choice to say but it's not my fault yeah. i'm just doing what the law says mm-hmm. which you was a can't. great turn damned if you do damned if you don't yeah meanwhile susan writes chris a letter to cheer him up which Doris also signs. When a New York Post Office mail sorter sees Susan's letter addressed to Chris at the New York courthouse, he suggests delivering all of the dead letters addressed to Santa Claus to Chris and freeing up storage space. As court resumes, Fred is told of the mail delivery. He argues that the post office, a branch of the U.S. federal government, has acknowledged that Chris is the one and only Santa Claus by delivering the letters. When the judge insists on seeing them, Fred has them dump bag after bag on Harper's desk. Harper dismisses the case. On Christmas morning, at a party for Macy's employees, Susan loses faith in Chris when he admits he was unable to get her the house she wanted. However, after Chris offers Fred and Doris a route home to avoid traffic, Susan sees her dream house with a for sale sign out front. Demanding that Fred stop the car, she runs into the house exclaiming, Mr. Kringle is Santa Claus. Fred learns that Doris has encouraged Susan to have faith and suggests they get married and purchase the house. He then boasts that he must be a great lawyer since he proved an eccentric old man was Santa. However, when he and Doris spot a cane in the house that looks just like Chris's, he's not 
so sure. Roll credits. So what do you guys think of the letter that Susan wrote? Did you guys have a chance to actually read the letter? I only read the bottom part when Doris signs it. I paused it and read it. I took a screenshot of it. Do you want me to read the letter? I'm going to say no, but you're going to read it anyway, so go ahead. Professor, do you have an opinion? I don't care. Okay. It says, Dear Mr. Kringle, my mother says you are sad. Now I am writing you because I want you to be happy again. And to tell you that I believe all you told me and everything will be will turn out fine. I even believe you will get me the present I asked for. I hope you are not sad. Yours truly, Susan. So the thing that I thought was kind of interesting is while it's a nice letter and it's a cute letter, it's also a pretty selfish letter in that she's still believing he will get her the house. Santa baby. <laughs> Why is that bad? I, I don't know. It's just not, I thought they could have left that little house part out and her basically just saying, I just wish for you to be okay. Would you have it eight years old? I don't know. I kind of hope I was. Fuck off. I was all sweet and nice back then. Oh, I wasn't as jaded as I am now. Starting to get nauseous with all this bullshit running around here. Um, no, I didn't read the letter. I, I, I mean, I didn't think anything of it. So, yeah. well, but when Doris signs it at the bottom, come on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point of it, mm-hmm. I, I thought, was to show us that Doris has come around and she believes. Mm-hmm. Or she just wants to help him feel better when she puts I believe too. You're just very pessimistic, aren't you? It can be either way. Either way, it's a nice gesture. Is it? Because like I said, at the end, they both show their doubts that he was ever really Santa Claus when they say, wait, you see the cane? Maybe he was Santa Claus. I mean, they at that point, they both didn't believe he was Santa Claus. If you say so. So I think that it is interesting how the uh, post office has their own selfish needs. Hey, we can get rid of all those dead letters, right? They see this Chris Kringle letter, you know, to the courthouse. Hey, let's take all of those. How? How did all of those letters, why were they addressed to the courthouse? No. No, they weren't. They were addressed the to... The one Susan's was, but that gives the post office the idea of, they're all to the North Pole, right? Well, we can't deliver them to the North Pole. But Chris Kringle's at the courthouse now. So let's just take it to him so now. So now we'll yeah. take it to him yeah, now. Yeah, because I guess uh, like every post office has what they call the dead letter area that are filled with letters to Santa Claus. And some of them even write back to the children. Oh, that's sweet. Wait yeah. a minute. Are you trying to tell me that there's no Santa Claus? No, they are helpers of Santa Claus. Santa can't respond to all of his fan mail, so they help him. Okay, okay, thank you. And somehow, miraculously, the next day, Chris is able to read that letter from Susan. But here's my question, is if that hadn't happened, how would Fred have won his case? He wouldn't have. He was he he conceded that to Chris yeah, so I'm thinking when he sat down. It was pretty lucky that the mail that the post office wanted to get rid of all those letters that kind of saved the bacon there kind of <laughs> totally or the candied bacon or whatever yeah, yeah it was so lucky it's a fucking movie guy like, that's the only way I... that's that's the only way they could have done it and actually before cuz i had never seen this before they kind of had the reindeer going testify. into it well that that's where i thought they were going to go i thought they were going to bring in reindeer but i was thinking how the fuck do you prove something like this and then they use the system against itself, I guess, yep. somehow. I would have gone with, uh, instead of proving he was Santa, prove he's not 
Santa Claus. Oh, there you go. Maybe you should have tried the queso. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I love how Fred tees up the whole mailbag bit, right? That he comes in and, like I said, hearing was already resuming and he comes walking in and he has three letters. And so, um, boy, the prosecutor, it's just like, yes, you need to show. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the judge is, well, nope, right here on my desk. Right here on my desk. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> Saw that coming. You know, bam, in comes 11 bags. And they deliver all these bags. And the judge has no choice but to dismiss the case. Because he can't argue against the government. The government says this is, you know, Chris Kringle is Santa Claus. He's getting the letters. If he says he's not Santa Claus, then the post office just committed an illegal act by delivering to the wrong person. Because right. the post office must deliver letters to the correct recipient by law. And so, you know, to, ha- to have that happen, Your Honor, every one of these letters is addressed to Santa Claus. The post office has delivered them. Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes that this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. Bam. Mic drop. Mic drop. And how, how relieved do you think the judge and the prosecutor were? Oh, fuck, thank God. Now we don't have to be the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, but then also I was wondering, because the prosecutor had said earlier, if I lose this case, I'll probably lose my job. Does that mean he lost his job? Uh, no. And he's not necessarily saying that he is the one. It, what the judge says, since the United States government declares this man to be Santa Claus, this court will not dispute it. And the judge had said it earlier on, too. Santa was never on trial. Chris Kringle was never on trial. It was a competency hearing. So they didn't have to follow all of the strict rules of the court. Sure. Mm -hmm. Doris and Chris chat so briefly, and Chris invites her for breakfast, and she invites him for dinner. I can't. It's Christmas Eve. I thought that was a cute cute little touch, too. Mm A little subtle. It's it's his busy night. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the next morning. Christmas morning. Christmas morning, and they have that big old party like that on Christmas morning. I was just... Who Come does on. that? Yeah, who does that? Maybe in 1942, it was the thing to do. 47. What'd I say? 42. Oh, what's the fucking difference? Five. <laughs> Maybe back in 1943, it was the thing to do. But um, yeah, it was kind of weird. Kind of weird. Kind of like uh, having dick, a... Ha- dick move. It Kind of like having a cocktail party at eight o'clock in the morning. The thing that was weird to me was that when they go to leave, Chris just happens to have a... Hey, Take this route. You'll avoid some traffic. That, what do you mean just happens to have? That just seemed odd that this man who they had been doing all this stuff with, and he's the one that just happens to have like the Google Maps and the traffic report. And- well, clearly you missed the entire point of this film. He's Santa. Why wouldn't he have it? And what he is doing is he's doing the best that he can. He wasn't able to purchase the house. The house was for sale. But instead... He gets them to drive by the house. And he can't spare the elf manpower to build said house because, well, Christmas for the world. Well, this supports my theory is that maybe this Chris Kringle was actually a retired real estate agent. Totally supports it. Yeah, I I think that's that's valid. And that's how he found the house. It's it's prevalent throughout the entire movie. I agree. Mm -hmm. Total real estate agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Retired. But and it makes sense. That's why his cane was there, because he went and checked out the house as a retired real estate agent and just happened to leave his cane in the house. There you go. Problem solved. And the last little bit that we have as, as well is we have Doris telling Susan to have faith. Right. And 
And so there she is. There's Susan sitting in the car. I believe. I believe. I thought that was a little bit. Yeah, contrived. Over, yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, they get into the house. Stop the car, Uncle Fred. Stop, stop. And I thought, Uncle Fred. That's weird. <laughs> well, I thought it was so funny is that this house matches the drawing. So the drawing was probably done of this specific house. And now here I am picturing in my head of this Chris Kringle showing up with maybe all of his reindeer and all of his elves and strong arming the people and saying, you will sell this house. You will put it up for sale and you'll get the hell out. Wait, I thought he was a real estate agent. Make up your fucking mind, So he's dude. not a real estate agent? No, he's just the muscle. Oh. So, oh. Yeah, so a, a little Violet Knight-ish. But you could also think of it, you know, he could be... You know, Chris Kringle, Santa Claus, couple days of the year. Santa got to have a job the rest of the year. He's got to make some money to pay all those elves. Have you guys ever seen Fat Man with Mel Gibson? Yes. He has a he has a U.S. contract. Yeah. That's how he makes money outside of Christmas. Mm-hmm. So we have Susan racing into the house. and This is my house, Mommy. Oh, brother. I love that position that Chris puts him in. Now they got to freaking buy a house. Well, that's what they wanted. But I guess it was foreshadowed earlier in that, was it Fred or Doris say, I think it was Fred that said he really wanted to move out of the city, move it into a nice house in the country. So that's kind of what he was looking for. Sure. And then it's wrapped up all too quickly that, oh, you know what? The house is for sale and they smooch and it's like they're engaged. Well, that was the other thing that... I felt like they had built Doris up to be this strong, opinionated woman who's very intellectual and she's in charge of her own life. And at the very end, they end the movie with him basically saying, well, I guess we're going to buy the house and you're going to marry me. It's like he took over all the decisions for her. So I don't know. It was a cute ending, but I think it could have been done a little bit differently. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe with her making those decisions. Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't. I I think it worked just fine. You didn't it, feel like it was it, the guy telling the girl what's going to happen next. It it did. It worked just fine. But in today's world, we have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. You're right, buddy. It should have been her. What do you think about having the cane there? I thought it added a little bit of magic. And what I really appreciated about this film is that there was no magic. At any time, he could have, the filmmakers could have made him snap his fingers and something could have happened, or we could something have got fantastical. this. Something fantastical. Or we, we could have seen but reindeer we never somewhere. got it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I thought the cane bit really worked, and I thought he was I thought he was Santa Claus from the very beginning. So, so did I. You didn't have to shake my tree. You know, for me, I don't think the point was ever for him, to, you know, whether he was Santa or wasn't Santa, it was just about having faith. And so I like the idea that we never get the reveal. Like you were saying, there was no magic in the movie that we saw is that you don't have to believe he really is Santa or not to appreciate the movie. And the fact that us, the audience does not have a definitive answer one way or the other, and it's left to us to decide ourselves, I think is a nice touch. Yeah, I agree. And that was Miracle on 34th Street. There is one actor in this movie who actually appeared in the remake. Do you know who that actor is? Uh, Natalie Wood? No, Natalie Wood was dead by the time this one came mm-hmm. out. The Santa Claus? Was it Sawyer? No. Nope. Who was it? It was 
Alvin Greenman, oh. who played Alfred. He played yeah. a janitor. The kid. Oh, the kid. Yeah, in yeah. both movies. I guess that makes sense because yeah. he was young in the original and yeah. old he in the is, remake. <laughs> he is also, to bring, you know, end this on a happy point, he is the longest surviving person from this movie. He died at 86 in 2016. Chris Kringle, we were talking earlier about the fact that, you know, you and I, Don, we love his beard, his white beard. It's almost as good as this wizard that I know, uh, not Dumbledore. I think his name was Gandalf. Oh, fuck. Oh, Lord of the Rings. And now it's time for John's... Moment. Last night when I was trying to come up with my precious moments, uh, ideas for this podcast, I thought, what if I just say, Merry Christmas, no precious moments. And I thought, well, hell no, you're still getting the precious moments. Damn it. Yay, us. Lump of coal in your stocking. This is the point in our podcast where I compare the movie we are currently reviewing to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So for our Frodo, you might think that it was Chris Kringle who was on the journey, but really, I felt this movie was more focused on Susan Walker's journey. So she would be my pick for Frodo. Like Frodo, she starts out as a sheltered little person who quickly learns that there is more out there than she's been raised to believe. She embarks on a journey of transformation, learning to embrace the spirit of Christmas and the belief in the impossible. Both Susan and Frodo are changed by their journeys. Fred Gailey would be my choice for Samwise. Throughout the movie, he plays a supportive role to Susan. He also shows he is honorable and a steadfast character in the way that he stands up for Kris Kringle. Fred would also be my pick for Aragorn as he exhibits qualities of bravery, integrity, and a strong sense of duty. Along with that, he shows other qualities like leadership, determination, and a willingness to fight for what he believes is right. And in the end, he does become king of his new castle. I struggled a little bit to figure out where Alfred might fit in, and I felt that he fit in as Legolas in that he was a little bit different than the rest of the characters, but he had a sense of honor, uh, kind of a nobility to him, and as well, he was very loyal and just on target. So I, I really thought he kind of gave off Legolas-type vibes. Gandalf in Miracle on 34th Street would be Kris Kringle, a.k.a. Santa Claus. Both are magical characters who possess wisdom and a deep understanding of human nature. Both act as guides and mentors to the other characters. Additionally, both characters are larger than life and have a profound impact on the people around them. So that would make our fellowship... Susan, Fred, Alfred, and Chris. Doris Walker would be my pick for Arwen. Both characters have a sense of grace, inner strength, and a deep capacity for love and compassion. Like Arwen, Doris starts out heading in a direction that takes her away from her Aragorn. But by the end, she joins him on the same path. My pick for Saruman the White is District Attorney Thomas Mara. While he claims what he is doing is for the greater good... The greater good. He works against our fellowship. He basically is doing the bidding of our Sauron, even though it's not direct. So who is the Dark Lord Sauron? In Miracle on 34th Street, the one trying to stop the journey of the fellowship 
most would be Granville Sawyer. For whatever personal reason he has, whether it's power or control, he works against Kris Kringle and therefore inadvertently against all the children's belief in Santa Claus, especially our Frodo, Susan. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In Miracle on 34th Street, the best analogy or comparison for the one ring would be the belief in Santa Claus. Much like the one ring holds power to reshape Middle Earth in the hands of whoever wields it, so too does the belief in Santa Claus in the eye of those who hold on to that belief. Chris tells Doris early on that Christmas isn't just a day, it's a frame of mind. And children's belief in Santa is a big ingredient in that frame of mind. It's also the belief in the Christmas spirit. Take Santa out of Christmas and you put a pretty big dent in that frame of mind. The tangible symbol of that belief is the letter that Susan writes to Santa. Her belief not only gives him the power to continue, but also has influence over Doris and others. And in the end, it's the letters to Santa that win the day. It's probably best said by Fred Gailey, faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Don't you see? It's not just Chris on trial. It's everything he stands for. It's kindness and joy and love and, and the other intangibles. That's what was at stake in this movie. And that was what was on trial. And there you have it. My comparison of Miracle on 34th Street to Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What you got there, bud? Uh, that was pretty good. There is one thing that, John, you uh, state not quite correctly. Your ring should be the disbelief in Santa Claus as opposed to the belief in Santa Claus. Oh, good point. People start at disbelief and then work towards belief. The prosecutor, the judge, they sort of grudgingly come around to it, but we have Susan completely believing in Santa Claus. I, I don't know if you caught, but when I said belief in Santa Claus, I didn't say either way. So disbelief and belief are included in there. The power for good you know, like Frodo and those who tried to use the ring for good would be the belief in Santa Claus. Those who tried to use the ring for bad would be the disbelief in Santa Claus. That's mm -hmm. what I was trying to go for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in general, I, the concept is sound, and, and I totally get what you're saying. The rest of the cast filling in, I was getting a little anxious where Doris was going to be filling in because she came into your description a lot later. It's like, where is she going to be? So sneaky he is. Sneaky. Hobbitses. Mm -hmm. I knew Gandalf was going to be Santa. Had to be. Yeah. It's kind of no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm of the opinion that that was worth a solid B. What do you got? Um, a minus. Holy fuck. I'm feeling the Christmas spirit. Merry Christmas, there buddy. Is a Santa Claus. And that was John's. Precious. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, are you ready to rate this flick? Well, you don't have to sit on my lap to know how excited I am. All right. That was not too bad. I like that. Hey, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. A one fuck movie is a movie where you watch it, you're one and done. You're never going to watch it again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is it, you get done watching it, and then afterwards you turn to your buddy and say, 
Oh, for shit's sake. What the hell was that? This, what is, I want one hour and 36 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Well, I guess it was my pick, so. Duh. You go first. Thank you. Miracle on 34th Street. I thought it was a very simple story. It was well acted. Other than showing the sign of its time, it it is a feel-good movie. I like the idea that we don't see the magic, like I was saying. Um, this story and the belief in Santa Claus is kind of like religion. You either believe it or you don't. And that's not wrong or bad. It just is what it is. And I thought that the cast did really well. It felt very standard. Uh, as far as movie, as far as the way the movie was constructed, we didn't move the camera a lot. We got a lot of shots on tripods. And for the most part, the story was really simple and I really enjoyed it. And I'm glad that I watched it. I'm giving Miracle on 34th Street 3.75 fucks. All right. I'll go next. All right, buddy. Go ahead. Yeah, I believe in Christmas. Miracle on 34th Street is a Christmas classic that does not disappoint Curiously, though, it is not in my wheelhouse of Christmas movies that I watch annually, but it's always a delight to watch. I've seen it several times. Natalie Wood is delightful in this. Uh, I, I, I dug all the characters, Doris and Fred and Chris Kringle. He, he's, he was so good. He's, he's pretty much the quintessential Santa. And I think that this movie plays out so uh, simply. It, it, it's a very straightforward story. At an hour and a half, it moves along very efficiently. The, the, uh, the whole courtroom bit, you know, that's the last third of the movie. That's one third of the movie. And so, you know, having the ingenious uh, story arc at the end that gives us, well, he really must be Santa Claus. So therefore he is because of all the letters I thought was extremely clever. The story has a lot of heart, and I find nothing poor about this movie. I think it is a solid 4.25 fucks. 4.25 fucks from the professor. All right there, tough guy, you're up. Oh, before I go, would you like to guess what rating I am giving this one? Sure. Uh, I think I've gotten the last two wrong, right? Yes, I will go ahead and say that you're going to give Miracle on 34th Street Three fucks. Three fucks. Your final answer? Final answer. Okay. Bah humbug, one star. One fuck. I'm just fucking kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Miracle on 34th Street is a heartwarming Christmas classic that delivers a timeless message about the power of faith and the magic of the holiday season and is a gift of imagination. The performances in the movie are good. I especially appreciated... Edmund Gwen's performance as Kris Kringle. He really captured the holiday spirit of the character and helped bring the story to life. The only negative elements I can bring up are some of the pacing issues and the fact that it's fairly dated. But for its time, it was successful in capturing the magic of the season. I also had a few issues with the storyline. Many folks, even up until the end, had selfish reasons for wanting Chris to be Santa, or at least the appearance of Santa, whether really believing in him or just not wanting to be the public figure who doesn't pretend to believe in him. But I also appreciate how they left things ambiguous, because in the end, what does it matter if he's really Santa or not? It's the spirit of the holiday that matters most. 
If I had to create a top 10 for Christmas related movies, I would definitely have this one on the list. But for rewatchability and my personal nostalgia's sake, it would probably be closer to 10 than it would be one. So with all of that said, I'm giving Miracle on 34th Street three fucks. Back on track, baby. Back on track. With three fucks from the comic book guy, 4.25 fucks from the professor, and 3.75 fucks from yours truly. That gives Miracle on 34th Street an average of 3.7 fucks, which puts it in the 15th spot, tied with Green Street Hooligans, Dogma, Talladega Nights, Halloween, Interstellar, and The Outsiders. It is slightly better than 1917, Top Gun, Commando, and slightly worse than... Booksmart, The Blues Brothers, The Muppet Movie, and Hell or High Water. So there you go. Is this our highest rated Christmas movie? Uh, no. Uh, Violent Night? Die Hard. Die Hard. Die Hard 2. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. Speaking of which, John, where can they find us? They can always find us at threeguysandaflick.com, where we go ahead and post all of our show notes. Uh, All of our podcasts are available there, as well as some trivia. And there is a form there that you can submit what movie you would like us to review next. You can also find us at all of social media, as well as any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Happy holidays, and thanks for listening. Valid Destiny has been available for a while. To buy. No, I've watched it a couple times somewhere else. Where no, have I watched it? On Prime, because you bought it. Uh, did I? Yes, I watched it on your account. Oh, okay. Then I must have bought it. <sighs> is, it uh, <laughs> is it Christmas time? Chris Kringle is indignant to find. I going to say pissed off. I kind of like that. Is Chris Kringle is pissed off to find that a man assigned to play Santa in <laughs> I do. We haven't even gotten to the porn days. I, I know. I, I do it. I, well, there's only really kind of like one. Um, <clears throat> I do it just to get that look. Is that why you paused after I said Zach, Ronnie, and Jill? Because I went into it too quick. It was yeah. The cadence was off. Yeah, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? And then you go like this, and I'm like, oh wait, I didn't even say that's going to wrap it up for this episode, did no, I? You were just quick to get out of here. Yeah. Well, fuck. I got to go to work, bud. All right, professor. What's the porn name? I don't have one. <sighs> I got two. You got two. I got one, and I think it's kind of a no-brainer. Well, let's hear your one. Uh, Miracle on 69th Street. That was one of mine. Professor loves that one. Look at that smile. Go on. My second one was Milf on 69th Street. Oh, I kind of like that, too. Fun fact. When is a caribou a caribou, and when is a reindeer a reindeer? Uh, A caribou is a caribou when it's in Alaska, and a reindeer is a reindeer when it's at the North Pole. A reindeer becomes a reindeer once it's a caribou that's been domesticated. Oh. <laughs> so I have a fact too. What's that? Did you know that Santa used to say he, he, he until he met your mother? <laughs> <laughs>
Wow. All right. May all of your uh, days and nights be filled with happiness. All right. Fuck off. Good night. <laughs>